Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. All of you this morning, my name's Eric, I'm the pastor here at Trinity, and before we get to the message, I just had, I know we have a bunch of updates that we were sharing today, but I have just two more that I want to share with all of you because they're important and there's some timeline related to these things. First of all, um, an update regarding our leadership. In March, as many of you know, we ordained and added two new elders to our team, which was exciting, and we had our first meeting all together um, in March, in late March together. And the first thing our new team did was we met together with what was called the leadership team, and some of you know what that is. The former pastor here, Iron Kim, had a leadership team that he worked with formally, informally, to help provide input on decisions and to work together on some leadership matters. So our new elders met with the leadership team, and one of the first things we decided was, how are we going to work together? What is this going to look like? And it was unanimous. We decided with our elders being ordained to lead, to oversee the church, and to care for and shepherd uh, this church, that there was no longer need for a separate leadership team. Um, so just wanted to give that update. We decided that for Chi and for James, James is our finance director, Chi is our missions uh, coordinator and director. They're no longer on the leadership team, that doesn't exist, but they're serving in their ministries. The next thing we did, and just clarifying the leadership decision was kind of action one, action two, is okay, what do we do next? And as we were discussing this, I was thinking about how we ended up coming here. It's been nine months since I've been the pastor here at Trinity and our family has moved to Orange County up from, from San Diego. And I was looking back in my journal 
as we were praying, as we were reflecting and trying to figure out, is God calling us to something new? And, and the question, the first question I wrote down in my journal was, what is the vision and the mission we are called to give our lives to? Just the, the prayer that I began with, for me and for our family. A few lines later, I saw that I wrote, the key piece is a community to pursue this vision with together. And so we're here, which means we felt like you are the community we want to pursue this vision and mission with together and following Jesus. And so with, with a few months under my belt here, being here for about nine months with our new elders and our team in place, and with some of our new staff that we've also um, hired, it seems like the right time to begin to start asking big questions together like, where are we now as a church? And where is God calling us to go next? So the next four months, we're going to be tackling that question. We figured, how should we do this? We want to do this. We want to just ask, where does God have us? What are the resources and gifts and opportunities we have as a church? And what does that mean about how we're called to steward and use those resources for vision? So today we're starting kind of this four- to five-month project. It's going to be our elders working together with our staff, also working together with our ministry leaders and a few new members as a small team to begin to start to ask and wrestle with these questions and pray through these questions together. So another part of this process is going to be hearing from you, getting your input as the whole church. You'll be hearing updates as to how this process is going, we're also going to be asking you these questions as well. So I'm sharing that to share these are the updates, these are the things our elders are working on, but I'm also sharing that to ask you to pray. Pray for us as we are bringing these big questions before the Lord. Lord, where are we and what are you doing and where are you calling us to go next? I think it's very timely that we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount together, because the Sermon on the Mount is kind of Jesus's training course for a community that carries out His vision, His vision, and is about His mission in the world. So now we'll transition to, to our message together after that update. Last week, we started this new sermon series called Flourish on the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we talked about how this is Jesus' most famous sermon. It's maybe perhaps the most well-known part of the New Testament and the Bible. And the introduction that we looked at last week and that we read again this week is, has been known as the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, those repeated phrases. Those are Jesus' description of and His invitation into the life of blessing, the life of flourishing. And it's found, we, we were discussing last week, it's found and it's formed in the most unexpected places, in the most upside-down ways. The poor in spirit, not the self-sufficient, in mourning and not always being happy, not always in winning, but in making peace, not being popular all the time, but sometimes being persecuted and so on. So in essence, the Beatitudes are a description of what it means to be a Christian. What does it look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus? So the passage we've just read today is continuing on in Jesus' introduction to His most famous sermon. In verses 13 through 16, 
are tightly connected to the first 12 verses there. Before Jesus moves into teaching in the rest of his sermon about the very practical and real issues of life, anger, worry, lust, money, before he gets into the specifics, he wants to set the stage with this two-part introduction. So part one, he says, I am showing you where to find the life of flourishing, the blessed life. This is what it looks like. Today, we're going to be looking at part two of this introduction where Jesus is telling us that he's calling us to live for more than our own flourishing, but to live so that others might flourish. I want to share a quick quote here from Andy Crouch. He says this about leadership. I think we have that slide. He says, leadership begins the moment you are more concerned about others flourishing than you are about your own. Jesus says that's the effect the Sermon on the Mount should have on us. This is the kind of impact and influence the Christian community should have for the common good. You are to be salt and light. We'll look specifically at what those pictures are telling us, but taken together, they are pictures of the pervasive positive impact that Christians should have on their neighbors, on their communities, and on the world. Last week I mentioned one way to look at this passage is to see it as Jesus' ad campaign for His kingdom. Before the days of commercials, one way that people's vision of the blessed life was formed was through these things, these lists called macarisms. Macarisms were these lists of the blessed life. And often they went like this, blessed is the man who has a beautiful wife. Blessed is the man who has a lot of money. Blessed is the man who has a lot of kids, who's successful and respected and who follows all of God's law. And the point of these macarisms was to paint a picture of life so that people would say, I want that. That's the life I want. It was to shape the desires of people's hearts and the decisions they made. So same goal as any commercial, right? A commercial, you see the product, you see something happening, and you're supposed to say, yes, I want that. I have to go buy that. That's the goal of any good commercial. In, in my household, we have four young boys. So there are rarely any moments of silence or quiet in our house, often very loud, a lot of activity happening. But there is one time in our home when you could hear like a pin drop. It's so silent. And that's when any commercial is on TV. If we're watching like a sports game and I'm trying to get them to pay attention, I'm like, you got to watch this. And they're just like messing around and going all over the place. But then there's a commercial. It could be any commercial. It could be a shampoo commercial or like JCPenney women's clothing commercial or some men's deodorant and they're just like transfixed, sitting there silent. And then I usually go into my lecture about how they're being brainwashed and like, don't you know what a commercial is? It's brainwashing you. Don't watch this but they are totally mesmerized and quiet. I think this was the effect of the first 12 verses that came out of Jesus' mouth in this sermon. His audience was sitting there. They had seen him work, some incredible miracles. Many of them had been healed by Jesus. They had heard him teach, and all of a sudden he says, this is the blessed life. 
I think they were silent. So paradoxical, so upside down, so hard to believe. And then come verses 13 through 16, into that silence, Jesus says, this isn't just about how you can flourish. This is how you bring blessing and flourishing to the world. This is about how you become people God uses to bring that flourishing to others. So today we're going to look at two things about verses 13 through 16 mainly. We're going to look at these three words that show us our calling and these two pictures that tell us how that influence happens. So first we'll look at these three words that give us our calling. These three words, you might just skim over these because they're very common words in any language, but they form the beginning of verses 13 and verse 15. Those three words are, you are the. You are the. Verses 13 and 14 begin in that exact same way. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. At first glance, you might just read over that and go, okay, whatever. Let's get to the other part of this passage. But as I was studying this week, I realized that each one of these words is extremely significant. First is you. In order to understand the significance of this word, we Californians, we have to humble ourselves and learn from our neighbors in the South, our Southern neighbors. Besides learning from them that, that the banjo is a very valid musical instrument and that sweet tea is something that you can enjoy as a connoisseur. Besides those two things, our southern friends have something to teach us about this word. Amelia and I, we, we got to go to a concert this week and we were talking to the guy who was selling merchandise behind the desk. And as we were talking with him, he said, oh, how did y'all hear about Drew Holcomb? That was the artist we went to go see. And I said, are you from Tennessee? But yeah, he's like, well, the y'all gave you away. We don't say y'all around here in California. And he was like, what do you say then? If there's like all these people out there and you want to talk to them, what word do you have? I said, we don't have a word out here in California. It's like you guys or something like that. But that's where Southern dialect has the advantage over California dialect because they can understand what Jesus is saying here. The you is a plural, you. It is a y'all. Jesus says, y'all are the salt of the earth, and y'all are the light of the world. He addresses this to his disciples as a community. And in our individualistic ears, we often mishear that. We say, I am the light of the world, and I am supposed to be the salt of the earth. But just one grain of salt is not going to make much of an impact. One speck of light can't make a difference. These things have a collective impact, and that is how Jesus designed it. This means that all of us are a part of this calling. Every Christian is a part of it, not just for professionals or pastors or optional volunteers. And it means that this impact of salt and light is most powerfully felt collectively. So that's y'all. Second word, are. Jesus doesn't say, be the salt of the world. He doesn't say, be the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. It's a statement of identity. This is who you are. And here's where the connection to the Beatitudes is so important. 13 through 16 are connected to 1 through 12. Jesus is saying, those who live this life in the Beatitudes, they will have an impact on the world. They will influence the world for good. Their presence will be felt. So there's a 
the real sense where Jesus is saying, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be a Christian, and the impact will be felt. So this means it is impossible to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, and not influence and impact others for good. That, that can be convicting. We'll let that question hang. We'll come back to that later. Y'all are the. The word the is also significant. This is the definite article. Jesus doesn't say, y'all are a light. Y'all are a salt. The Christian community then is God's chosen and appointed vehicle to show others what it looks like to flourish and to invite others to flourish under his rule and in his kingdom. So Jesus, this making the statement saying, you are the salt, you are the light, is making a big statement in a number of ways. To his audience at the time, the disciples and the crowd that was there listening, they were wondering, who is it that is called to carry on God's mission to the world? A question that they were asking. Who is called to show and invite people into his blessing? Is it the ethnically defined people of Israel who had been given this task by God all the way tracing back to their forefather, Abraham, when God said, I'm blessing you to be a blessing. But through their story, through the history of Israel, we see in many times and through many seasons that they were often more conformed to the surrounding cultures and lost their distinctiveness and their flavor. And so they were wondering, who's going to carry this mission on? Is it the Pharisees, the ones who are zealous about following the law? Is it the scribes? Is it the religious leaders? Jesus says no. Is it the revolutionaries? We're going to take up political force and military force. Jesus says, no. Is it the political leaders of the time? Jesus says, no, it's you, my followers. It's you. You're it. Those whose lives correspond to these beatitudes and the rest of what he'll say in his sermon are the way God brings flourishing and blessing to the world. In our time, we're asking similar questions, probably in a different way. We're asking in our divisive time in our culture and in our country, who is it that's going to bring flourishing and good into the world? Who is it that can look beyond the interests of their own group, their own tribe, their own interests, to look for the common interests of the whole? Who can recover any notion of the common good? Jesus says to his followers, you're it. He's saying that to us. I'm not saying that other religions or non-religious people don't do any good. We're saying that, and Jesus is saying that there is the unique flavor of the gospel. The unique calling to give others a taste of what our Heavenly Father is like. He says, you are it. So those are the three words, the calling that Jesus gives. And in these three words, we see an invitation, an encouragement, and a challenge. It's an invitation, an invitation to work for the good of the world. Jesus says, if you follow me, then I will make you into a force for the common good. Do you want your life to leave behind a lasting impact? Do you want to leave the world better off because you were here? If you really want to make a difference, if you want to influence others for good, he says, follow me, build your life on me, lean into every one of these beatitudes and what I've done for you, and watch what I can do through you. It's an invitation. It's also an encouragement. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
you will make an impact on others. You will influence others even when you don't see it happening. Often we go throughout our lives and we wonder, am I doing any good in this world? Is God using me in any way? And Jesus says, I am. The poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning, the merciful, the peacemakers, Jesus says, you are the most significant force for good in this world. And so to every Christian and to every church, Jesus is saying, as a reminder, it's not how awesome you are or popular you are. It's not even how spiritually and morally good you are, how much power you have, how much celebrity you have, how many answers you have for others. Then don't measure your influence by the metrics of this world, but by these new metrics in the Beatitudes. Those who live like that are a force for good. So it's an invitation, it's an encouragement, and it's also a challenge that all who follow Jesus are called to influence and impact the world. Genuine Christianity in action, Jesus says, will, it will influence and impact the world for good. And this life of flourishing that he gives to us is always meant to be given away to others. And so here's a moment where we have to ask the question, what happens if the church doesn't or hasn't lived up to this call? What if instead of living by these beatitudes, Christians have been merciless, aggressive, self-righteous, always happy and surfacy, causing conflict, persecuting others? Then what do we say? Well, those are challenging questions, and the reality is these things are true. Sometimes those who have called themselves Christians have not exhibited the Beatitudes, but they're very opposite. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, we need to say we acknowledge that and we repent of that. We confess these things are true and they should not be. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have to wrestle with that question. If this is a part of my identity, then I, am I embracing that calling? What impact, what influence is my life having? So an invitation, an encouragement, and a challenge. Jesus moves on after describing this calling to give us these two pictures of how this influence happens. How does this work? He says it, it works like salt and it works like light. Let's look at salt first. There are a lot of ways people have understood this salt metaphor. Salt's very common now. It was very common then. It was used um, in everyday ways all the time. Salt is mentioned a number of times in the Bible, too, and it's used in a lot of different ways. Two uses that were the most common, probably, were salt being used as a preservative to keep food from going bad, and salt being used as a seasoning to make food taste better. And so instead of just trying to zero in on one of these uses of salt here in this metaphor, I think we are meant to see multiple aspects of this picture. As salt, Christians are to be fully present and distinct. In order for salt to have its preserving effect, it has to be rubbed on to the food. There's a commentator, Frederick Bruner, he said this about salt. Salt, a centimeter away from food is useless. 
Christians not living for people outside themselves are worthless. And that's like, ouch, very convicting. As Christians, we should be rubbed in to the lives of the people around us. We should be fully present, not withdrawing, not retreating from the world. This image of salt as a preservative implies that apart from God and His influence in the world, that there will be decay, there will be breakdown, there will be deterioration in people's lives, in societies, in organizations, in families, all over our experience. And that's exactly where the salt is needed. It means that retreating in fear of being polluted by that which is deteriorating is not an option for Christians. We're to be rubbed in to those places. It means that the power of salt through Jesus is strong enough to combat the power of decay and corruption in the world. And so questions we should ask are, where do I see things breaking down around me in my life? Where do I see relational deterioration? We rub into that. We move into those places. We are to be fully present. Fully present and distinctive. The picture of salt shows us it's not just enough to be present, but we also need to be distinctive. When there's salt in your food, then you can taste it. A few weeks ago, I had this sinus infection. I get sinus infections like once a year, and it's the worst thing ever. But probably the worst thing about a sinus infection for me is that right at the tail end of it, I lose all my sense of taste. And I become very grumpy and very miserable. Every time I'm tasting food, we're going out to eat, and Amelia's making food, and I'm like, I can't taste it. Life is horrible. And I become very depressed because I can't enjoy my food. And I still remember some meals that I have after sinus infections. I remember the food I had because it's like, yes, I can taste again. Chicago beef. I remember that meal. The joy of tasting food again is so great. The one thing that should never be said about Christianity in a community is I don't taste it. Oh, there's salt in this food? I didn't know. I, I couldn't taste it. At an individual level, oh, you're a Christian? I never would have known. Oh, there's a church here in this community? Really? Okay. I didn't know that. Some may say, I don't like that taste. Others will say, I've never tasted anything like this. But no one should say, I don't taste it. Being salt means we're distinctive and fully present. To be distinctive and not fully present means no one knows you're there. No one can taste it. To be fully present but not distinctive is to blend in and to lose impact and influence. And Jesus says in verse 14, if you look there with me again, if salt loses its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. People have read this and responded, well, that is where Jesus is wrong because sodium chloride is a very stable compound. It cannot be mixed with anything else. It cannot lose its, its uh, flavor as salt. But that's kind of using our scientific mindset to look back into the ancient world because in Jesus' time, salt often was found in and it was all mixed in with other substances, and it was kind of mixed in with the soil. And so there was salt in that day that you would say, oh, let's see how good the salt is, but it ended up being mixed, and it was good for nothing, and so they needed to toss it out. So it's true. It's kind of exactly the point that Jesus is making. True salt, pure salt, cannot lose its taste. 
But in his day, salt wasn't always pure. And so there's a vivid image of this loss of impact and influence that Christians suffer when we attempt to live a mixed life. Jesus is saying, you can't have the life of flourishing I came to bring to you and mix that in with other lives. He's calling us to live in the Beatitudes, not their reverse. Last week, I shared a slide. It's an exercise that I did. Well, what if we took the Beatitudes and flipped them into reverse? I just want to share those again. Blessed are the self-sufficient. They don't need anything or anyone instead of blessed are the poor. As we look at these Beatitudes, some of these were like, I like number four and five on this list, but I'll take the rest of Jesus' list. I'll take one and four on Jesus, and I'll take five and six here on this list. Jesus is saying we can't mix it. When we do, we lose all our impact. This week, as we're thinking about this image of salt, I want to encourage you to ask, where might God be calling you to rub in, to be fully present, to bring the distinctive flavor of the gospel? Maybe there's a situation that's breaking down. Maybe there's a person who's experiencing something difficult. Maybe God is calling you to rub in and be salt. That's salt. Now let's look at the second picture that Jesus gives us, which is light. Light can also mean a variety of things in the Bible and in the culture at the time. It reveals what's true, and it also draws people in. As light, Christians are to be visible but discreet. Jesus is saying, if you live your life by these Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to be lit up. I'm going to light up your life with blessing and flourishing in the unexpected ways, the most upside-down ways that people will take notice and go, what is happening with that person? And Jesus uses this image of a city on a hill. The idea is that the Christian community is a city within a city, an alternative community, a counterculture, no matter what culture it finds itself in. And so there will be visible differences between the Christian community and any other culture. You say, well, what does that look like? Give me some examples. Well, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to be getting in to these concrete examples. He's going to say Christians should have a visible and noticeable difference with how they approach their sexuality, with sex, with money, and with relationships. There should be an observable and visible difference in how we live in those areas. We're going to be looking at those for the rest of this series. But for now, I want to focus on how Jesus wants to change how we think of what it means for us to shine. He says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If I were to ask you, thinking back over the course of your life story, what are your shining moments? What's the picture that you have in your mind of your shining moments? You might have a literal picture of those shining moments. It could be an award, an accomplishment, a degree that you earned. For me, I think of me in the third grade, I'm holding this little science fair trophy. Third grade science fair winner. That was, that was where I was at the top of my game. It was all, all downhill from there. When we think about our shiny moments, Jesus gives us a very different picture of where our shiny moments happen. It's when others most clearly see God at work in our lives. 
not at our best, not at the top of our game, but at our most broken and needy when we are poor in spirit. Not at the promotion at work, but when we enter into the conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not in our perfect moral record, but in our relentless desire to be better. He says those who thirst and hunger after righteousness will be satisfied. Not when you push forward your agenda on others, but when you are meek and when you are patient. Not in having everything together on the outside, but what your heart is seeking, those who are pure in heart. These are our shining moments. These are when we make the gospel visible in our lives. Jesus says you should be visible. There should be a distinct and observable difference about your life, but he also says you should be discreet. When Jesus is saying, let your light shine, he isn't saying be loud and obnoxious Christian. That's not being light. That's just being loud and obnoxious. It means we're not to draw attention to ourselves. Jesus says, the light that is shining should draw people's attention not to you, but to the Father in heaven. In our world, the blessed people, the flourishing people, get the spotlight on them. But the people, Jesus says, who make an impact on the world are those who shine the spotlight on God and His glory. So we're not drawing attention to ourselves, and it's not by denouncing others. To be the light of the world, to be a city set on a hill, doesn't mean we denounce the world for all it's doing wrong. It doesn't mean we condemn the world for every way they're not living up to what Jesus says. Instead, we display what is right. We don't denounce what is wrong. We spend our energy on what we say yes to, not all our energy on what we say no to. An illustration of this would be, if you are a visiting fan and you're going to watch your team in another team's home stadium, we're going to do this in a little bit. We're Cubs fans and we're going to go watch the Cubs play the Dodgers and so we've got to figure out our approach and our strategy. There are three ways to do it. The first way is you put all your Cubs gear on, you just load up. You have a flag and a little finger and everything, and you get in the stands, and you're just obnoxious as you can be. Now, I know that's pretty dangerous in Dodger Stadium, so I don't know if we're going to take that approach, especially if you're a Giants fan. There's another approach, and you could just say, you know what? Let's leave all the gear at home. We're not going to get into any conflicts. We're there to enjoy ourselves, so we're going to pretend that we're not even Cubs fans. We might even put our Dodgers hat on and then just kind of silently cheer for the Cubs when they do well. That would be selling out on the Cubs, though. I I can't handle that. I would not be comfortable with that. So you could be obnoxious or you can just blend in, but the third option is you can wear the Cubs gear, but you can be respectful, you can be tactful, you can cheer for your team, but in a way that maybe a Dodger fan would say, I could hang out with a Cub fan like that. Not a perfect illustration, but it's kind of the way that we find ourselves today as Christians in our culture. This is no longer a place where the culture is formed by Christian theological principles. It's not formed by belief in the gospel. And so we are in the visiting stadium. We're not called to be loud and obnoxious. We're not called to wear the other team's gear and blend in. We're called to be winsome. We're called to be tactful, but we're called to point others to Jesus. In closing, 
you might feel like, and I felt this this week, how salty am I? Am I really that salty? How much am I shining? How much light am I giving off that brings glory to God? And those are very difficult questions for us to wrestle with and to ask. And in some ways, we can never really know the full answer to that question. But when we feel like, I don't know if I'm having any impact, I don't know if I'm shining at all, it drives us back to the very beginning of these Beatitudes where Jesus begins with telling us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not those who come with all the answers, with their hands full and ready to say, here's what I offer you, here's what I can give you, here's what I want to tell you. It's those who come empty-handed and say, all I can give you is what I've been given, Jesus, the gospel. In closing, say, Trinity Church, by God's grace and by God's power, let us be wholly present yet distinctive. Let us be visible yet discreet so that others would see and glorify God because y'all are the salt of the world and y'all are the light of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is humbling as we consider this call, this description, that we are meant to bring good, to influence this world in a positive way. We are so often overwhelmed and concerned with our own needs and what's happening in our own lives that we rarely even think about the impact our life is having beyond this. I pray that you would meet us and challenge us to consider that question. And I pray that you would encourage us. You would encourage us to live into these beatitudes, that we would know this unexpected blessing, and we would know that you can use us even in ways that we can't see. Encourage us. Make us salty. Make us light. We know we can only reflect you because of the enabling presence of your Holy Spirit within us. So fill us afresh with fresh vision and power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.